0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cross Pods Podcast. I'm Lydia Schampole, and this week, we will be playing you an episode of I Am Awake, Now What? Podcast, which is hosted by Krista Ziomara. In this episode, Krista speaks with Anika Spencer, who is an author and yoga instructor who discusses her departure from the Mormon Church. This episode dives into the challenges of navigating away from her religion of origin while simultaneously shielding her parents from the inevitable disappointment one can feel when their child decides to leave. Anika talks about forgiving the Mormon church, healing herself through yoga and spiritual practices, and how it's not easy to leave your religion of origin. You can follow Krista on Facebook and Instagram at IANWpodcast. All right, let's get to it.
1: This week's episode is sponsored by CrossPods. CrossPods is a network that connects passionate podcasters to businesses who want to advertise on their podcasts. Here at CrossPods, we want to help you reach more people, get paid for your art, and form a tribe of people excited about all things podcasting. We also provide a full directory of businesses who offer services to assist you in making your own business or podcast successful. We share all podcasts in our network on all of our social media accounts for free. You can visit our website at crosspods.com for more information or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at TheCrossPods.com. Hi sweet souls, welcome to I'm Awake Now What, a podcast about life, love, laughter, and enlightenment. I'm your host, Krista Ziomata. Rack up some good karma by leaving a five-star rating and write a review if you're enjoying this podcast and tell your friends about it. This week I interview yoga instructor Annika Spencer. Annika who was raised as a Mormon left at the tender age of 19. Annika shares her departure from the church and the challenges of navigating away from her religion of origin while simultaneously shielding her parents from the inevitable suffering and disappointment one can feel when their child decides to leave their faith. Annika opens up about how in a sacred moment she decided to move her life and her spirituality in a different direction. I wanted to take a moment to thank Annika for her kindness and her ability to hear my story through making sense of hers. My time with Annika unexpectedly brought me both healing and closure from all the pain I've been holding on to from my early experience. So grab your closest friend and a comfy couch and settle into this delicately woven dialogue between two women. Hey, Annika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being on.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Yes, I'm so excited to have you on the show. If you would mind telling our audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and just a quick, brief introduction about your life?
0: Absolutely. I am Annika Spencer, and I live in San Diego, and I'm a yoga teacher in the area. I grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints until I was about 19 or 20. I wandered around to a few different places and gone through a lot of changes and and adaptations. And I've grown to be the 31-year-old woman that I am right now, and I still have a lot to learn. Definitely had a lot of stumbling along the way, but um, currently I'm probably the healthiest and happiest incarnation of myself thus far in my life. I love that.
1: That's so beautiful the way you say it. Thanks. So you're doing yoga, but do you practice anything outside of yoga? Yes and no. No.
0: Yoga is inherently a spiritual practice, of course. Part of the perks of that is that the yogic tradition pulls from a lot of different traditions of the past. If I'm aligned with any one philosophy, it's probably the tantric philosophy. I explore with a lot of different things, but what I found is that it's best for me to keep it really simple and to establish that like there's a few really universal things and I can explore with meditation and I can explore with kindness and mm-hmm. forgiveness. And, you know, after that, you know, I don't know. Like, I like a lot of things, but I don't know any one thing. And so I just let my concept of what is divine or sometimes precious be really vast. And I just experience it the way I experience it. And I know that it's a really subjective thing. And other people feel it, you know, inside Christianity and other people feel it inside of a beautiful landscape. And I don't have any qualms with that.
1: Yeah, I I would say that I'm very much similar to that. Buddhism speaks to most of my sensibilities and it's what I really lean toward. But essentially in my own exploration, I've dabbled in kind of everything. Tantra is a really great place to be and a place to explore and expand as well. So it's really cool that you're mm-hmm. doing that. There's not really one specific thing that I am always set, you know, as far as like my ideology and the way I live my life. Essentially, I'm just trying to be a good person, put good things into the world and do as little as harm as possible to others around me. Those, those are like my three tenants, my three life tenants. Um, yeah,
0: they aren't cool. easily done. Like That's <laughs> enough to keep you struggling for a lifetime right there. <laughs>
1: life is always going to present you with a lot of different challenges. And if you can stay grounded in whatever practice you have, it makes it a little Mm -hmm. bit easier to navigate. And for me, that's what my spiritual journey has given me. Like I don't, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't really, for some reason, feel like Catholicism gave me the tools to navigate like everyday life. But like Mm-hmm. Every, all of everything else I've explored, like Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Taoism, Sufism, I don't know. They just, it's like they take a holistic approach to life and then that made it easier, right?
0: Yeah. You know, sometimes I think that it's easier to step into a religion or to see the good in a religion that you weren't raised with because it didn't have time to harm you. Yeah. like you. You weren't kind of bludgeoned with it from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, and I've talked to um, people that were practicing Hinduism as the religion of origin, and they, you know, they kind of had the same story where they did feel shamed inside of variants. And it's all about our interpretation, and it's Mm -hmm. also, I think, all about where we find a little bit of freedom inside of whatever spirituality we choose, and every single religion I'm encountered has like a a cultural aspect that can be um, off-putting.
1: For sure the point of you saying culturally too it's also culturally how your family operates within that religion as well and every religion there's like a spectrum of engagement and involvement and so I have friends that grew up like me who didn't have the same experience in that same church and vice versa I wanted to talk to you because you did grow up in the LDS communities. Could you? Mm give our audience a quick rundown of the LDS Church, what it is, how it generally operates, and then can we maybe talk about your experience and then kind of like moving away from it?
0: Sure. The LDS faith or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is commonly known as Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Starting out very young, the church is an all-encompassing part of your life. You go to church every Sunday. It's a three-hour experience. It was the most important thing in my parents' lives
2: Mm -hmm. and in our
0: family life, aside from perhaps our family unit. But it's hard to say that even, like family is a part of the Mormon faith one of the most important tenets in their mentality or their version values. So you work together as a unit. So even to say that like family is more important than the religion, Mm -hmm. that those two things can't be extracted for Mormonism. In addition to that, every day starts with family prayer and personal prayer. One of the things that differentiates between members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, we'll just Mm -hmm. abbreviate it from here on out, and modern Christian is that In addition to the Bible, they actually have a second book known as the Book of Mormon, which is why we tend to be referred to as Mormons, which is funny that I just said we because I actually refer to myself as a foreman, former Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't said we in a long time. Um, (laughs) No worries. So in addition to the Bible... They have a second book that was found in New York on Golden Place by the first um, modern prophet, according to the Mormon tradition. Mm -hmm. And he is said to have translated this book to create a complement to the Bible. So they still believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But since it has been translated so many times, Mm -hmm. and the Book of Mormon has only been translated once by the original and first LDS prophet, they kind of feel like it's less manipulated. So they, they honor that aspect. Mm, where, like, the Bible is a little bit more open to interpretation, and the Book of Mormon has not. Gotcha. Yeah, there's also a bit of a hierarchy inside of the organization of the Mormon religion. So Mm -hmm. there is a a modern prophet that is presiding who is a male figure, and he has 12 currently decided-upon apostles. Okay. Also, male figures. And then there's 70 beneath that community. Mm -hmm. And then each section of the church, according to location, depending on how many people are in that area, also has a presiding male figure known as a bishop, which probably rings true to kind of how the Catholic Church is organized. Is that accurate? Yeah. Church starts to become even more a part of your experience as you get older. In high school, we're expected to go to what was known as seminary. So we had an additional hour class before our high school class, before high school started for scripture study in a group format. That's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot education wise. It didn't seem weird at the time. What was interesting for me was I didn't learn a lot about what it was to be alive based Mm -hmm. on my parents' experiences. I was taught about what it meant to be a and a human and what was good and what was bad inside of the stories that were taught by the faith. So instead of someone saying like, oh, this happened to me and this really, you know, powerful, real and raw experience, it was almost like it wasn't discussed because it was a little shameful. Like there was no, people didn't really share their sin. And Mm. so what happened was like people didn't share what was real. And so the presented image was one that isn't actually true. And there's, you know, most Bible preaching standard approaches are also honored by the faith. But in addition, they have these additional rules and that is, you know, for better, or worse, a part of the experience, but it's never lauded to falter Mm -hmm. ever. It's a very harsh faith in that matter. And and no one's really discussing their sins because it's private between you and God or between you and the figures that are a part of the hierarchy who is helping you work through the repentance process. It's not quite the same as a confession.
1: Yeah, the confession, the similarity is that it's behind closed doors, and it's not transparent at all. And you do have to live with your sins in privacy, right? I think it's similar in that sense. And then depending on where you're at, and how close you are to your community of faith, you will either work through it alone, or you will work with somebody of the faith. But normally, I think you're absolutely right. It's very similar in the sense that you're just living whatever your struggle is in private. And that can be really isolating.
0: Yeah, it can be. There's also a lot with sexuality as well. In addition to abstaining from some of these substances Mm -hmm. in the Mormon tradition, as with many religious traditions, there's an emphasis on monogamy to the point of where one of the very common teachings that I was taught growing up was that after murder, the next sin in terms of terribleness was to have sex outside of wedlock.
1: Right.
0: I always thought that was pretty intense. Aside from murder, (laughs) (laughs) this is the one that like really is the most terrible because they said it could not be undone much like you couldn't bring someone back from the dead Mm -hmm. you couldn't bring back your chastity.
1: right yeah that's very heavy and that sends a, a really hard message to a young mind and also really shames you sexually before you've even probably experienced anything
0: true yeah, it wasn't especially hard at the time because as a you, and as someone that's been told this their entire life, Been told it from parents, been told it from teachers. You're just kind of like, yeah, that's the way it is. (laughs) This is what, at least for me, I wasn't growing up of the questioning mind very Mm -hmm. much. I was instead constantly seeking to like prove myself as worthy and to be good enough and to live up to that expectation Mm -hmm. of what I was told was a good person. But behind the scenes, there was a lot of angst. I had already started to cope with some bouts of depression. Mm -hmm. And I remember suffering behind the scenes. I had this somewhat interesting contradiction because my dad was raised by by a pretty powerful woman. He was very self-reliant. And so I received the message from him about me that I could do whatever I wanted. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So I had this father that in my mind, I think he was a little doting. I'm the youngest daughter Mm -hmm. and I was already a little weird and my free spirit (laughs) personality was already starting to show up. And so I would kind of try to keep it on lockdown when I was younger and be more reverent and kind of follow the rules. But the older I got, the less that happened. Mm-hmm. And so there was a bit of a tug of war in me of like, I want to be good, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. but I
0: also like, I'm just a little rebellious and a little wild, not in even a, in a reckless way. My dad, I think was a little charmed by that. However, when I would look at the roles of my parents with one another, that priesthood holder, male figure being the end all be all and in charge mm-hmm. was still a part of their dynamic. Right. And then as I would come into the religious experience of being separated from the males in the female. I knew that partially it was just to keep us from interacting in a way that could create temptation in terms of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And that was frequently discussed. And there was lots of rules around dating where I wasn't supposed to be dating until I was 16. Of course, I was like a little sneaky underneath the radar. I'm never very good at that. <laughs> uh- <laughs> As most
1: of us were not. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yes. You get curious um- and
1: there's really nothing you can do about it.
0: Yes, but they tried. They definitely tried. And then there was that decision to keep us apart in that time and to Mm -hmm. kind of start to coach us separately. And a lot of times for the women, and this wasn't as prominent when I was young, we would talk about like preparing for marriage and Mm -hmm. preparing to support this masculine figure that was going to be our priesthood holder and how we could be worthy of that and how we could prepare to raise children. And at the time, it was okay. And mm-hmm. I remember feeling a little left out because my brothers all got to go on 50 mile hikes because the male side was like Boy Scouts. Okay. And my dad would go with them and they would always have these ridiculous stories about the 50 miler hike. My dad one year tried to get the church to let girls go because he wanted me to be able to go. Yeah. And of course, he was told no because the overnights were in that environment wouldn't be allowed inside of the church and so he pushed for like a female-only trip and that would be an example of how he didn't mean to kind of stir the pot of my female empowerment and yet he did. (laughs) Once I started to get older though and go off to college, this segregation of the male and the female started to irk me more and more and all of this pressure was being put on the women to A, get married. I was in college and every conversation was about what I could do to be prepared to raise kids and what right. I could do to be prepared to be a wife. My worth as a woman yeah. was dependent on my ability to be a wife and a mother. And those are really important roles But we're individuals. And it was bothering me. (laughs) I remember the first time I ever questioned anyone in church. And I raised my hand and I was like, well, is there any reason why I could be educated just to educate myself and to refine myself? Mm -hmm. Or am I just supposed to get educated so I can educate my male children?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And what did they say to that?
0: There was some silence. They were like, oh, well, of course you're educated for you. But the real most important reason to get educated is for your children.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's really heavy for women to hear. A lot of times in our society, you know, we can't move forward as a gender so long as those kinds of ideas get propagated and perpetuated in our society. And even if they're a little bit watered down versions of that story no matter what religion or whatever faith or whatever culture, even in the Hispanic culture, for people who are not religious, that idea that your worth and your value is only determined by your ability to have children and to take care of a husband it is, is still there. It's still very much a prominent idea. Yeah. It's disturbing in the sense like we're just as human as men and it's disturbing Mm -hmm. in the sense of no progress will be made until the whole thing has to flip to one side and then recalibrate to the middle. But that's just really hard to hear. I think growing up, certainly the case in the Catholic Church is the same idea. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I totally get what you're saying. That seems really difficult to have to hear that, to have it sort of drilled into your mind for so long. Yeah, I grew up in kind of in a different sect of the Catholic Church. I like to obviously caveat that because it was different in the sense it was very fundamental and kind of old school. And there was mm-hmm. some weird things about body shaming and the same mm. thing about like that whole idea that like, you know, women should stay home. And I'm very much like you that I'm a free spirit. I've always been a free spirit. When I was really young, at some point, I yeah. just stopped marching to the beat of my own drum and was like well I need to fall in line yeah you know and then I stopped listening to myself and then as we get to unfold this conversation I believe I'll probably hear the same thing from you is that like you it sounds like you're getting to a point in this story where you're starting to question and then you're gonna have to pivot right Um, yeah when you were making your pivot what Mm -hmm. kind of support did you have did you have any did you seek any it was disorienting can we talk through that
0: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. It was it was all of those things It didn't happen in one one moment when I was reading that and finding that passage that I was studying in school, actually, that was addressing when polygamy was initiated. I just remembered feeling like really discontent with the explanation Mm -hmm. and getting frustrated and putting it aside. And that was probably in my first semester at BYU. And so I was still 17 and I got frustrated with it. And I was like, I can't, I can't even read this. And I set it aside. And then I experienced my most debilitating bout of depression I've ever had. Mm -hmm. I got stopped in my track mid-semester at school. And I I remember I spent a week in bed, couldn't get up. I couldn't get myself to class. I couldn't do anything. I just like laid in bed and cried. And I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure I watched a lot of Smallville at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember a friend knocking on the door trying to get me to come out in my dorm room, and I threw a shoe. (laughs) (laughs) But really, I broke down. I was at BYU. And I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. Yeah. I managed to get out of that room and out of bed and but I couldn't take myself back to class. I didn't want to go. I never wanted to go. I, I started taking to sleeping all hours of the day. Mm-hmm. So I would go into the common room, which was in the center of the dorm room. Speaking of, this dorm room was incredibly segregated. There was visiting hours for the boys from seven to nine on Wednesdays and that was it. It was just like no males allowed <laughs> in our living area. Of course. We were proper in apartments that were not on campus, that weren't dorm room. People used to put masking tape on the line that went into the hallway where the bathroom and the bedrooms were. And it was called the honor code line. So depression set in. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, so you, st- OK, you had that initial questioning and then some depression set in.
0: And uh, and when the depression hit yeah. was when I realized something wasn't working. Yeah. I didn't necessarily like, hadn't lost face yet. Uh, well, I, I mean, I was having a break in faith, but mostly I was just like unwilling to be miserable. And so I knew that something had to change. And I remember actually sneaking up to the, the rooftop during this time, sneaking cigarettes. And I was just like feeling a little restless and self-destructive. And I remember sneaking off for that and like sitting up on the roof, smoking a cigarette like, like a rebel, just pondering like why I was so unhappy yeah. and realizing that like, I didn't know if I believed this anymore. Oh, wow. And since I had been going less and less, people had been less and less kind. So I had started to be kind of a little bit of a like a leper.
2: Yeah. They <laughs> two, were treating
0: yeah. you like a pariah. It's like you didn't want to get too close to the person that seemed to be slipping because you didn't want them to drag you down.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
0: And inside of BYU, there were two sections of cool, like super righteous was like popular yeah, And then there was also the wild ones kind of were like a little cool, too, because you were like, we're off-skirt Mormons. And so I had always been like in the group of Mormons in my hometown that were the good ones. And like the wild ones, like really didn't want to go. Their parents would make them go. And they were just drinking all the time and doing all the things that I would have never done. And we called those Jack Mormons. They were like, they didn't really live the religion. <laughs> and I had always been like the good ones. Yeah. And it was trying hard. And then I got to BYU and I was like in the rebel camp. <laughs> <laughs> I was starting to lose friends. People didn't know what to do with me, partially because I was so sad yeah. and also partially because I wasn't going as much. So I yeah. started to work more on Sundays because I just didn't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was doubting but I wasn't ready to let go. So I would still go a little or I'd still go some and then going less and less. I started to become really close friends with someone mm-hmm. who I proceeded to have really strong feelings for and fall in love with, yeah. who was never actually a partner. And the relationship was toxic, partly because I wasn't expressing how my feelings were and what my feelings were. And also because there was just a lot of yo-yoing going on. Right. But he started to question the church as well. And I remember some of the things he was reading and he was discussing them and feeling really uncomfortable yeah. with his questioning. Can I um, stop and you just... for a second?
1: Yes. Before we get into that relationship, I do want to know at the time that you started going less and less, did your family know or were you hiding it from them?
0: I was hiding it from everyone.
1: You were. Okay.
0: And did you I... do that
1: instinctively, do you think? Or was it like you just, were you doing it consciously?
0: I was doing it consciously and instinctively. Like, I didn't want to let my parents down, mm-hmm. and I knew it would. Yeah. I didn't want to cause any unnecessary suffering, and at this time, like, I thought it was going to come back. Like, I thought my faith was going to, like, thought I was going to rally. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: I hoped that I would get past it, and I thought that, like, after I could get over the sadness part, maybe it would start to, like, come back up. I wasn't ready to let it go, so I didn't want to, like, cause them the pain of knowing I was doubting.
1: yeah. That's pretty amazing that you wanted to spare your parents from the suffering at that time.
0: For better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I definitely, that's when it started. Okay, of cool. that withholding with them.
1: Yeah, okay. I just had, I just wanted to follow up on that question, but so we can get sure. back. So then you were basically telling me that at the next point was you were becoming friends and close with some person who was questioning as well.
0: Yes. The most important person in my life was someone that I became friends with. Because I was being rebellious and because I wasn't going to church, the friends that I had made that were new mm-hmm. started to drop off. Right. <laughs> And then some of my older friends were also dropping off because they were going different ways. And I was feeling really misunderstood. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't really feel like I could talk about this. The friends that I was making were people that suddenly were like work friends that maybe weren't as involved in the religion Mm -hmm. or they were involved in the religion. But I just wasn't talking about what I was going through. Right. The town of Provo, Utah, that is the home of BYU where I was living, is about 90% Mormon yes, in population. <laughs> so, like, you've been there, I've been you've there, seen yeah. it live. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's mormon i'm completely surrounded by mormons and i'm realizing i don't know if i want to play anymore yeah that must be so tough and there was a few people that i confided my doubts in and interestingly they were all men i remember there was a guy i dated that i like um, i kind of picked him because i thought he was rebellious looking back like i was like oh yeah And then we didn't end up staying together. And I remember crying to him and telling him that I was doubting. And he gave me a priesthood blessing to help me like rekindle my faith. It was really nice of him to use his his God power on me that I didn't have. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So back to this other relationship, we became friends. I had feelings for him. And then he had started to... Question and read some of that ever so illicit mm-hmm. uh, literature that was was anti LDS. I remember specifically he was reading a book called The God Delusion, and uh, he started to decide that this church wasn't for him, and asked a lot of questions and bring up a lot of conversation. And I remember feeling really, really, really uncomfortable and like not wanting to be around it and like scared for him. Interesting. And yeah, and then time passed. I was not going to church, and I realized I just really didn't want to. Then I started to join the conversation. Yeah. He was probably my only support at the time was this friend romance, somewhat dysfunctional romance, actually, but also fellow questioner.
1: Yeah. And you probably had some small semblance of solace in being able to talk to somebody about it, which is really difficult to find if you're leaving your, you know, your religion of origin. I, you know, I went through it and I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. Um, Yeah. I felt very alone. Leaving, Um, of course, yeah. So, when did you tell your parents that and your family? Like, what I don't mean mean to fast forward, but I'm interested to, of course, to know. Like, do you send out like an all points bulletin to the family? Like, (laughs) what happened? Well, I was,
0: I I did not um, come out of the closet as a non (laughs) Mormon. Okay, it's a both a funny and a sad story. So, what happened was my parents came to visit. And they were supposed to come just for a sporting event at BYU and to go home on Sunday. And I had been seeing Mike and I had been not going to the church for, I think I hadn't gone to church in a year and I knew that I no longer believed it. I had finally like, I'd gotten to that point where I was like, I don't believe this anymore. It's uncomfortable. But like, I know that this is not my belief. And I was almost in this point where I was like, I wanted at this point to be an angsty atheist. Like, I was like, (laughs) I'm an atheist. Um, I wasn't, but I wanted to be like, and at this time in my life, I was like, if Mormonism isn't it, nothing's it. Like, I'm out.
1: Annika, I had that exact same thought when
0: I left. I think it's really common.
1: I know. And I think when you grow up in religions where they exist in extremes, (laughs) You, inevi- yeah. you inevitably have to throw out the baby with the bathwater.
0: Yeah, I did. Um, And this was the point of my life where the baby was out. The <laughs> baby was rolling around. Uh,
1: so they came, my friends this came game. to visit. Yeah.
0: What happened was my mom's mother, who lives in Colorado, had fallen ill. And my mom felt it necessary to go out and help her sisters get things set up. So mm-hmm. their plan was to drive back on Saturday. I mean, Sunday morning, so they wouldn't be staying for church. And then my mom's mom got sick. So instead, she booked a a flight out of Utah for Sunday evening. And so I didn't find that out until we were at the game Saturday night. And my mom said, Well, what time is church? Mm -hmm. I mumbled something along the lines of nine or 10 because I'd never been to that ward. I didn't even, I didn't, (laughs) I'd never met anyone in my ward. I'd never gone to church in this area. So I mumbled a time that seemed like maybe it would be right. I looked up what time church was for my ward, and it was 1 o'clock. Oh, my goodness. So I was already kind of caught. I went with it anyway. I was like, oh, I mean, it was 1. So we went to (laughs) the 1 o'clock church, and then everyone proceeded to introduce themselves to me. (laughs) (laughs) There was one guy there that worked with me. So he worked with me at my restaurant that I was working at, Mm -hmm. and he knew me. His name was Jeff. And Jeff sat next to me and made it look like I knew someone in my ward, which was great, and and kind of caught on relatively quickly and was a little bit trying to field people away from me so that people would stop introducing themselves. (laughs) So we stayed and we went to church. And at the end of the first hour where everyone's together, a woman got up to give the closing prayer Mm -hmm. to the service. She was blubbering crying. Oh, my goodness for some reason, I found this to be absurd. Her job was to close the meeting. Her job was to be like, thank you for everything everyone said. Bless the rest of church. And then you're done. But for some reason, she was blubbering. And this was really common. Like people cry a lot in yeah. religious experience yeah. and in spiritual experience. But in this moment, it struck me as funny because I couldn't understand her. Right. And I started to laugh while sitting next to my mom. <laughs> <laughs>
1: sure. There's like a general rule that you just don't Laugh in church too, so I can imagine your mom was completely mortified.
0: I was pretty irreverent and I was holding it together. No one maybe her her and the person next to me could hear me because yeah. and in the next hour I was writing notes to Jeff and I don't remember what they were saying, but I was starting to feel a little argumentative about how, how the Bible was being interpreted and I was writing notes essentially through the entire second hour. And at the third hour, my mom said, I know that you hate Relief Society, which was when the girls would be sectioned off and have to go together. And she said, do you want to just go? And I said, yes. So we left. And then she left. And then a month later, she called me. Mm-hmm. she asked when I had stopped going to church and I said that I hadn't really been in over a year because obviously that I had never been to that ward Yeah. and she said well did you just stop going or do you not believe it and of course there was a pregnant pause and I said I just didn't believe it she proceeded to cry and said but your testimony was so strong what happened Yeah. and I didn't have any answers for her and I was crying she asked me why I didn't tell her and I said I didn't want you to think you were a failure.
1: Oh, Annika.
0: To which she responded, how could I see it any other way?
1: Oh, that breaks my heart so bad right now.
0: And I know just the way it was. And like, I always knew that's what it was. And it wasn't personal. And I look at that now and, and I feel sorry for her and that that's how it felt. And I wish I could have protected her from it, but I couldn't.
1: Yeah, I think you can understand it just as well. It sounds like we had a very similar experience. I don't know that my parents said it in that same way. But if if that's what they believe, and that's how they want to live their lives, it's so foreign for somebody to walk away from it. And it's from a Parental standpoint, I know that it has to be so frustrating for them. I don't have children yet. And, you know, I live a very open lifestyle as far as like religion goes, whatever they choose is is not going to bother me. I don't think <laughs> uh, I say that now, right? But um, yeah. I think if you're in something very specific, some specific religion, and you raise your kids that way, and you want them to raise their kids that way, it just seems like from their perspective, like they have no tolerance sometimes for people to sort of depart from that. And it mm. can be really painful sometimes.
0: I know it was painful for her. And I am in, in no way surprised by that interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I, what happened was I was just, just kind of isolating not just from my parents, and but also from this whole social group that I had had when I was LDS. When I came to BYU and made a second round of LDS Friends, I felt like everyone felt like her. Right. No matter who I was talking to, maybe they didn't feel personally responsible because they didn't raise me, but like the idea was, Relationship <laughs> failed if you're not Mormon because yeah. this was what we shared, this was our bond.
1: Yeah, I just interviewed a lady named Jenna. She's, mm-hmm. She started an organization in Austin called the Empathy Project. And oh, I know <laughs> she's the sweetest person ever, and the Empathy Project is built around this idea of reintegrating LGBTQ individuals who mm. still want to have a Christian faith and heal. The re- I know and heal the relationships between their family units and their church if they want to continue on with their church of origin or if they want to enter into another church. She's built this really beautiful community of therapists and pastors and priests that just run this thing and run these, this place for these people to, to come back and sort of re-engage in their faith. she she talks about something that you're mentioning that you and I both experienced and I didn't have words for it at the time but she talks about how in the LGBTQ community if you grow up as a Christian of any faith it doesn't matter which one it is there are all of these sort of arteries of connection you have your family unit right that is part of Mm-hmm. As part of your faith. But then your friends share that faith. And then your friends friends share that faith. And then, you know, maybe the neighborhood you live in is also sharing that faith as well. And if you choose to pivot and go in a different direction, you sever every single one of those arteries. and. Mm-hmm. I know for me, at the time of my pivot and my decision to walk away from my Catholic faith and, and go explore something different, I didn't even understand that I was walking away from a lifetime of support. I took it completely for yeah. granted and didn't realize it wasn't going to be there anymore. And oh, wow. She talks about how that happens to the LGBTQ community. And although I'm not LGBTQ myself, it resonated with me so well with my experience. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard it put that way. And so I'm curious wow. if, if that sounds to you like kind of the same thing you felt?
0: I absolutely felt it, but I wasn't surprised. Like I knew that's what I was doing. I severed the bond before anyone else could push me away. So instead of letting people find out and reject me, I hid all of it. I took myself out of the equation and away from all those people. I wasn't comfortable around those people. I didn't write a notice. I didn't tell anyone. I was like, you can't know because you'll reject me. I avoided anyone. Interesting. I ran. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know. I, I
0: I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. Know.
1: I wow. Well, I was just naive. What a shock. I was just naive about it. It was just like I thought I was going to come to my religion of origin, my family of origin, and just say to these people, "This is where I'm at. I need you guys Ew. to accept it." I just assumed they would accept it, and then I realized wow they, were, they weren't accepting of it. I think it was just a naivety on my side, which is kind of silly because I was yeah. like. 2728 but but that's a different story. Uh, my wisdom well, is a little bit more robust these days.
0: Oh, of course it is. We're all growing. <laughs> the reason why I knew that it would be handled was because I had been so clearly in their shoes like I knew how they thought because I had been them. I knew right. what I had been taught as far as to steer clear of people that would challenge your faith and bring you down. Mm. And like, I knew that I was in that box
2: gotcha. and I knew
0: that my family thought I wasn't going to be there when we died. If I didn't shape up, I knew the pressures on them and that I represented them as a family. And I also knew societally what that meant. Uh, so, but on the other hand, like something that I've addressed and this will probably come up later was, I never gave anyone the opportunity to love me for who I was. I didn't give anyone the chance to rise to the occasion and show up instead. And maybe they would, and maybe they wouldn't have.
1: Right. And that was because of all of the like cultural conditioning through the church which said that like, you're not lovable unless you're A, B, C, and D or X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I mean, you don't probably at that point love yourself, uh, you know, Mm -hmm.
0: without without condition. Yeah, absolutely not. And just to credit The faith. I think it's important to note the church didn't say, hey, you're not lovable if you're a sinner. But I interpreted that. Like, that's what I took it as. Like, that's how it felt in my body and in my heart. What I felt was that every time I tried to live up to these expectations that had been set out, whether it was don't drink or Don't flirt with boys before you're 16 or any of those things. Like, I wanted to live up to that expectation with every inch of my being, Uh and I couldn't because my personality wouldn't let me. And so I kept like wanting to be what they asked me, and I couldn't make myself do it to the degree that was enough.
1: Yeah, I totally empathize with that. I definitely felt that as well. Um,
0: Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that. The lessons of Christianity and the lessons of Mormonism are not that you're not enough. It's more that like Christ died for you and he'll pick up the slack. But instead, I was like, "Christ died for me, and every time I do something wrong, I make him bleed. So
1: <laughs> I really like how sweetly you said that it fell really hard on your heart and on on your body. I didn't understand either in my journey is that why I was feeling like that and why it was not resonating with me the way it did for other people, like people in my religion just seemed to be accepting all of these things that were being told to them. And Mm -hmm. nobody was ever talking about like the psychological impact of what wasn't said, but was implied. Yeah. And that was really, really difficult for me to sort of chew on. And then also I had to leave to make sense of it. I think you're going to talk about that at some point too, but you have to separate yourself from it. And then you've got to sort of hold up side by side and say like, is this true for me? Is this not true for me? Is this what yes. I am? Is this not what I am? Like, and you just mm-hmm. end up having to do this like debit and credit sheet, some, spirit, <laughs> some spiritual debit and credit reconciliation of your soul, essentially. When you leave, yeah. you have to say like, what is true about me, and what have I believed, and and what do I believe now? And it's it's a really yeah. difficult process. It's not easy to walk away from your religion of origin
0: and come no. out and come out
1: the other side healthy and held and secure and in one piece I think.
0: No it's not and I also remember feeling like I had to rewrite my morality.
1: Yeah well and it's interesting you say that because tell me if this resonates for you. My idea of morality was a very specific set of things and it was that morality only applied in the context of Catholicism and doing all of the things that were involved in Catholicism and so for me I always thought I was a really good person in the church. And then when I left the church, I still felt like I was a good person, but I didn't have anything to match it up to. And so (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Was it like that for you?
0: Yes and no. At the time of where our story left off, I was completely selfish. I realized that I had like disappointed everyone. So I was kind of just like, well, I'm not going to try. I was feeling like an atheist. And Mm -hmm my mentality was like, well, if this is wrong, then it's all wrong. And then I'm like, it all doesn't matter. I'm like, I remember telling a lie to a friend and catching me in it, having to have them explain to me like why I wasn't allowed to lie to my friend. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, you told me you were doing laundry when really you had five friends over. And I was like, yeah, well, I thought I was going to do laundry. And she was like, actually, you lied to me and it's unacceptable. And I don't appreciate that in a friend. And I remember being like, wait, what? I'm not Mormon anymore. I can lie. (laughs) Interesting. I I like had to try everything out and be like, oh, well. I'm a liar. And then realizing that, like, that doesn't feel good.
1: It was as if, like, you had to learn how to walk, talk and speak spiritually again or something.
0: I did. I had to <laughs> to break all the rules and then realize that they had reasons for being there in the first. But there was a lot of rebellion for me initially. There was like a year where I was like, I don't care if I'm a good person. I'm just like, I'm out and I'm a mess. And honestly, at that point, I was like, and I hate myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think our experiences are all very telling of where we start. And again, I think it's that living in extremes. And I went atheist, too, for a while, because for me, I didn't go atheist to rebel what I went atheist for, um, if that's even a thing. (laughs) I went atheist. It sounds like... Like I went to a nudist colony or something, yeah, I did it because I wanted to know if I really believed in God on my own or if I believed mm-hmm. in God as this made up thing that was mm-hmm. drilled into my head when I was a child. It wasn't even yeah. about morality for me, it wasn't about my journey; it was solely this science experiment of my soul to see whether I did. And I came to the conclusion that I know I can't comprehend in my own ignorance as a human, what God is, how vast and how big, little, whatever God is, but it exists for me in my mind. And I can't, I can't live in a world where there is no God. So that's, that's where I came out on the other end of atheism for myself. I like the spiritual
0: science experiments.
1: Yeah, it's a science experiment. And I think when you grow up in religions that are very black and white, you don't realize you can be A, curious, B, try out a lot of different uh, things until you figure out what's right for you. You can make mistakes and you don't have to be perfect. Yeah. All right. I think we keep getting into the middle of your story here. So you had some rebellion, and what happened next?
0: The relationship that I had been leaning into that wasn't great. I was starting to get fed up with that, and I was still really aching and lost. And I remembered, I was at my apartment. I was praying to God to make it stuff, like mm-hmm. to make the hurt stop. Yeah. And I remember just like begging on my floor on dirty carpet, because you know where you live when you were 20 or 21. I was 21. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> the relationship was a big catalyst for me. So I was just head over heels in love with this person that claimed to not be in love with me. I think a little piece of me really felt like he was, but he couldn't give me what I wanted, which was the relationship with him. Yeah, It was really hard. And so I remember praying and then I remember. All of a sudden, getting really, really calm, and a voice in my head said, go to Alaska. And I had a few friends that were working up on a train up in Alaska, and one um, had just worked the season before, and they were about to hire for the next season. And so the voice in my head was like, you should probably go to Alaska. And then I was like, just calm. Like, just steady. Mm-hmm. Just like, okay, all right, that's what I'm going to do. So I like decided and applied for the job and got the job, and I was just waiting tables on a train. On the way up, I, of course, I got scared afterwards. It was like, what am I doing? And the only time I had moved was to Provo, Utah, and my parents were moving me there. I don't know why I'm leaving. I don't know what I'm doing. But we packed up my little Corolla, and I took one backpack because I had convinced two other people that they also needed to go to Alaska, and that they were only allowed to bring one backpack in my Corolla. And, that is and, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So one backpack of possessions basically no money. We drove the 54 hours from Provo, Utah, up to Seattle, and then up the Alaska Canadian Highway. Okay. And I remember on the drive, the other two people had fallen asleep because for some ridiculous reason, we decided that it would be best on our pocketbook to not stop and pay for hotels or camping, (laughs) but instead just drive.
1: That's 20-year-old wisdom right there.
0: (laughs) Oh, we were so wise. But they were sleeping in the back. I remember at the time I was, like, really in love with death. Like, I loved when the mountains were black, but the sky was still blue and you mm-hmm. still could see stars. Yeah. Beautiful time of night. No,
1: It is such a, such a peaceful time of evening as well.
0: Twilight. Yeah. And twilight. I had freaked out before I left and cried to Mike and almost not left. <laughs> I hadn't eaten the whole road trip. I was, like, so upset about Aww. everything. Then in this drive, twilight happened. And I was driving through these mountains in Canada because we were so far north at the time for this leg of the trip, Mm -hmm. twilight didn't stop. Twilight just kept happening. And then it was still happening. And then an hour passed and it was still twilight. And the way that I was driving, I would get just far enough north that twilight continued to happen. And I don't know if you've ever driven through northern Canada, but there's nothing there. (laughs) (laughs) It struck me that I was the only person that was seeing this right now. Like it was just for me. And I was like, that's it. That's God. That's divine. And this is just for me and everything's going to be okay. It was a beautiful moment. And, and I cried and it was okay. I went to Alaska and I made some amazing friends and I was working seasonally and everything was just a fiasco. It was like drinking boot I remember my first five months in Alaska, I was someone up there. I remember waiting for like the darkness to come, like the depression to come that I was mm-hmm. so used to feeling over and over again. And it just like, never arrived I was like waiting for the other shoe to drop and instead I was just like I was just okay yeah and I was even happy
1: I think sometimes that's the definition of being constantly connected to God because it never does come
0: and I didn't have anything up there like I didn't have a bed I was sleeping in a corner next to the kitchen wow I didn't have money to buy a can opener to open the can of beans that we had at one point (laughs) we were waiting for our first round of paychecks. And I remember being so stoked when I finally could afford a $2 can opener. I had to call my mom and ask for money. Like it was the most poor I've ever been. And I had no possessions and we didn't have television. We didn't have anything. I read feverishly. I read Eat, Pray, Love. And I remember her story reflecting how I felt when she talked about crying on the bathroom floor and like that experience of God being like, go to bed, go to bed because it's going to get worse before it, it's better. Yeah. I was like, I felt that. And I remembered in that moment, all of my experiences that I had had in Mormonism that felt like something were still valid mm-hmm. and that they didn't just like suddenly become not special because I wasn't that religion anymore. They were still real. And this other person who wasn't even Mormon had an experience just like mine where like everything was going to be oh, okay. Yeah. And like they got warm. It woke me up to the fact that those things could happen yeah, And it also woke me up to like, I don't need as much as I thought I did in order to be okay. Like I need a book and a nook in the corner of a kitchen and I probably need a job at some point.
1: <laughs> Annika, that's really beautiful. I'm really grateful that you just shared your experience with Eat, Pray, Love. And we didn't tell our audience that we just met at the retreat with Liz Gilbert. and Yeah, and Martha Beck. And Martha Beck, I've never heard of her before (laughs) then, actually. I adore Liz Gilbert, and I think she's everything. I would give her both of my lungs if she ever needed them. Oh. oh. <laughs> Don't give her anything. She's very special.
0: She's so, that weekend so was special.
1: special. Yeah, it was really special. Thank you for sharing that story because I think we all have different reasons why Eat Pray Love resonated with us and I know mm. it's resonated with like a ton of women everywhere and some men. I love that you said when you read that book you were kind of jolted by the fact that somebody that wasn't Mormon had a similar experience that mm. you had because I think that that's what happens all over the world and we're just so hell bent on having people in very specific boxes with very specific relationships to God and the universe and everything that is that sometimes it's missed on us. There's just so much beauty and connection in the world. And if you get to experience any little bit of that, it makes life worth living, I believe. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah,
0: I feel like we've cataloged like some of my harder times
1: you know, I mean, yeah, they were difficult, but I think you kind of alluded to it earlier. It It's part of the journey, right? It's part of the process mm. and the suffering that both of us have had to go through, which is a lot of it is just an internal struggle to figure out. what's right for us. And, and that's not easy yeah. to do. And sometimes you're not always supported in that process, but it's totally worth it. Hey guys, I just found the best new spiritual app called Saged. Saged was created for anyone who is on the spiritual path, looking to deepen their practices, learn more about specific rituals, and connect with like-minded people. Saged is packed with things like moon rituals, daily manifestations, book clubs, and astrology regimes. Saged brings all your favorite spiritual writers together in one place to provide you with support and advice. Saged can be found and downloaded from your iPhone and Android app stores. Download it today. I'd love to sort of transition into like where you are now.
0: So that was probably the pivotal point where I had the aha moment Mm -hmm. of I can still have spirituality. Spiritual experiences that I've had are still just as valid and just as real.
1: So your aha moment for you was driving through Canada and realizing you could have this really beautiful spiritual experience.
0: In nature, essentially. Okay. Realized, that I think it was more like this entity that I refer to as God is still here. And then when I was reading Ink Pray, Love, being like, oh, and it's always been here. Like, it's yeah. all of this is valid. Yeah. So when I was a little kid, I would hold a teddy bear, and I convinced myself because I was afraid that bad people were going to come in and try to kidnap me, and convinced myself that when I was sleeping, my teddy bear would come alive and protect me from these people. I thought that when I left religion, I was convinced myself that this thing exists so that I feel better and I can close my eyes and I can right. sleep at night. So I know the teddy bear doesn't come alive now. Yeah. Maybe maybe this thing doesn't exist. Wow. And so instead I was like, wow, like this thing does exist. I'm going to just go ahead and say this works for me and it told me to go to Alaska and here I am and I made this amazing group of friends. So fast forward, I started to seek spiritual experiences and finding them in a lot of different places. Like I found it a lot in nature, just being outside. I found it in yoga. And what I really found in yoga was learning that self loathing character that I discussed as being really present when I left the church, coming into a yoga practice and starting to experiment with feeling this body and not being ashamed of it, and feeling my own experience and not being ashamed of it, and just letting there be room for all of those things, that was really special and starting to have conversations about spirituality with people that could have them that weren't as wounded by religious experience or they weren't, they were never were religious, but they still had these same experiences that I had had or that Elizabeth Gilbert had had and you have had. And, and there was, yeah. there was dialogue about it without a rule book about it.
1: Yeah, meeting people for the first time who had had experiences like that, that didn't grow up in a religion or didn't have a set of things they practiced was like the coolest thing to know that they were still experiencing those things without the context of some old school religion.
0: Yeah. It was really beautiful. I did have another dark night of the soul, however. I became a yoga teacher Mm -hmm. and things were going really well. And I had also taken some time to find the same experience, the same speaking experience And honestly, like a lot of psychological growth through psychedelic experience as well. But inside of both of these communities, I was also starting to see a thread that replicated my experience in religion, where, you know, there was also some pretension inside of this cultural experience of even yoga. And that started to really get on my nerves. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I think primarily yoga is a very inclusive culture, but much like religion, I was seeing that these same like people as imperfect beings with a lot of different ideas about how things could or should happen can also start to press their ideas on people, or there can be a conformity that naturally happens within this subject of. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different styles of teaching and a lot of different ways of viewing the philosophy. And sometimes those things overlap and contradict. And sometimes our contemporary version of how things could be can contradict with some the older and original doctrines. And there is that issue as well. So I was seeing a lot of this happen and getting a little disheartened as well. And um, Interesting. Yeah, I've since made friends with it. And one of the things that I realized was that I had an experience where I was cataloging my resentments that I had and I, anything you've ever been mad at everywhere, it's an exercise. You have to write it down
2: okay. and then
0: like really analyze why you're mad at, at all these things. So like a lot of the questions that are asked are like, what's your role and what role have you assigned other people? And what is the fear beneath this assignment? It was a, it was a really, it was a very thorough worksheet. On what you, why there was resentment here. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because you do the front side of the worksheet, and as you look at it, by the time you get to the bottom, you're like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) like I had so many expectations of the situation, yada, yada. And then on the other side, in a cultivation of empathy and release, like it asks you to, to list all the times you've done the same thing. Or (laughs) what delusions you had, what expectations you had, what lies were you telling yourself? And it was a really healing process for me. But I actually ended up writing one for Mormonism Mm -hmm. and one for the more esoteric sides of yoga practice or even the community that I had interacted with in this fresh, new, psychedelic family that was also just as culty as maybe my original (laughs) Mormon
2: faith. And
0: I was like, crap, that was the year I joined a cult. Um, <laughs> But I had animosity towards both. What was amazing was I actually, through this exercise, felt like I got to forgive Mormonism. And I also felt like I got to forgive this other side of spirituality that doesn't have a rule book. And it was because when I was writing out Mormonism, I was like, they told me what to do. And there was all these rules and blah, 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 blah. And then I was writing the one for spiritual community that Mm -hmm. had kind of came up with their own rule books And I was like, there's hierarchy of power and there's no accountability. And they just say whatever they want to do. And there's no rules. And I was like, you know what they need? We need like an overarching council of (laughs) yoga people that know like the best way to practice yoga and to know the best (laughs) philosophies. And we should be checking it against these spiritual texts. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I just described organized religion. And so it made me laugh. Like, I was like, oh, "Oh, what happens is, there's two sides of the coin and spirituality exists and power struggles exist inside of all of these experiences because we're human. And
1: that's what I was going to say. I came to a similar sort of outcome and understanding. I don't think mine was as intensive and robust of a reflection as yours, but essentially (laughs) what what shook out for me is that the common denominator in it all is that we're all humans and humans were inherently imperfect. And mm-hmm. so because of that causes a lot of the imperfections in the institutions that are supposed to be perfect, no matter what you, yeah. no matter where you go or, and, and even happens in your work life and in your friendships. And so for me, it was cultivating a very great deal of compassion internally and a great deal of compassion for other people when i would see them wanting to sort of inject those ideas or you know throw Mm. their own morality at me or throw their own religion at me you know even at times with my family uh, where it's like they're they're right i'm wrong and that there's no other way for it to be Mm. um So it sounds like we came to the same conclusion, but yours seemed real intense, like you thought about it a lot.
0: (laughs) It was intense, but it was, I almost like laughed at myself when I like had this revelation of if I want to regulate it, then I'm advocating for religion because this is what happens. And this is why religion regulates in the first place. Like, yeah, they agree upon a doctrine and sometimes that doctrine is restrictive, but their point is to have some consistency and Mm. to not have complete anarchy. And I mean, I lean into the anarchy myself. Some of the wisdom that I've bumped against is that like, there's a reason for some checks and balances inside spiritual community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we need structure and we need organization and we need checks and balances. And it has to be done in a really loving, objective way. And it's not always done that way in every single organization.
0: It's not. Yeah. They also advocate for personal responsibility. And there was a time when I stepped back from teaching yoga. I had fallen in love with the practice. I had fallen in love with teaching. I had benefited so much from the tradition and all of what had influenced it, as well as this contemporary version and elaborations on the tradition that were leading into psychology. All of these religious aspects, there's good stuff there. There's kindness. There's mm-hmm. forgiveness. Some of them even have that. They're advocating to question. And that's beautiful. Yeah. I know. And yet the
1: Buddha says, don't believe me just because Mm -hmm. I'm this person and I have these things to say, you have to question yourself. That's why I fell in love with Buddhism. The first time I read that I was like, yes, I don't want to blindly follow somebody. And I don't want to blindly follow a doctrine. And there are things in Buddhism that don't resonate with me and don't necessarily fit my constitution. But nonetheless, Mm -hmm. The fact that I'm given space to question and I'm given space to doubt and I'm given space to think on on my own is more than I could have ever asked for in anything, any practice I've ever had.
0: I love that. Yeah
1: in my relationship with my faith of origin, I really loved all of the certainty. And you kind of talked about it early on. You knew exactly what was happening to you in this life. And you also knew exactly what was going to happen to you after you died. And, (laughs) And there's so much, I understand why people stay in religion. And I understand why people are so tied to that idea of certainty. Or you have to have faith about, that you don't know what you don't know and you just have to be comfortable with not knowing, that's really hard for people to accept. And for me, oh, it's the hardest. It is the hardest. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, that level of certainty, I loved it. I loved it when I was in it and but I also used it as a weapon against people. Ooh and and I did too. Yeah. And so when I left there was a part of me that felt a lot of shame around mm-hmm. my behavior. And my judgment of other people, because I, I mean, I remember specifically feeling like people were going to burn in hell because they weren't Catholic, and
2: um, and
1: <laughs> and I and, and people who had sex before marriage, and all mm. of these things. It was so wrong. I've obviously forgiven my <laughs> my youthful self, and I don't feel like that about anybody anymore. But I think yeah. that that level of certainty that organized religion gives you about some of the, the questions that arise in us as human beings gives us such a false sense of security. And I think it's even more brave to step away from it and say, I understand that I can be safe here. I am still being called in this other direction that is completely ambiguous, that has no, yeah. no real level of certainty or outcome. And I trust it more than what you're telling me.
0: Wow. Yeah. I totally relate to what you're saying. And I think there's a moment when you realize that you're not believing in that faith. And I don't know if this is true for you, but it was true for me. And I've heard it said from friends that have left the church since, like, you feel like the rug was pulled out from underneath you and that you've been lied to. And like, you were given this certainty and it was like, it was everything. And then all of a sudden it's just taken so quickly. It takes a while to get excited about the uncertainty. And I don't know if you feel this now, but like this uncertain version is so much more exciting and free than this this certainty that I was handed and a prescription for my life there's something really exciting about having a version of spirituality that's ever expanding and growing and a little changeable sometimes and yet there's some things that feel universal and mm-hmm. that feel overarching and consistent mm-hmm. but then there's there's these other sides that are that are continuing to evolve and you recognize yeah. down the line that we we didn't even know that we could grow this big or we didn't even know that yes. um, that change and uncertainty was going to lead us to where we are.
1: Absolutely. You, that that is perfectly said. I couldn't agree more with everything. The idea about our own evolution and that living an open question constantly is Mm. the only way we get closer to the answer. And living in that space where things don't change, but my mind was changing, my ideas were changing, I was physically changing. There has to be, I think, a natural progression and an expansion in the entirety of our lives and i think at times the detriment of organized religion stifles that and if it gets mm-hmm. stifled it can be it can be like a prison and i agree wholeheartedly when you say that there is a beauty in the freedom of the unknown yeah so i feel more free as a person as a soul as a spirit than i ever could in the way i used to be and I'm not scared about anything. I was frightened. I was a very (laughs) frightened person for a very long time. I was frightened of people because I couldn't trust anybody who wasn't Catholic. I was frightened of Mm. men. I was frightened of, you know, people outside of America. I mean, you name it. I was, I was frightened for my soul at any given time. I was afraid to die. I don't have any of those fears. If I died Mm. tomorrow, I know I've lived an extremely full life and to as much full potential as I can. And I did left no stone unturned because I'm living a con- <laughs> constant open question. And I'm constantly trying to just wake up every day and be grateful for every single moment I have on this earth and no moment less than that.
0: I love that living in that open question is such a great way that you put it. And what's interesting is growing up, I was required to study this and to pray and to Mm -hmm. do these certain regimen of things. And I'm just as committed to some of those practices now, but it's all so much more organic. So like I am constantly studying different philosophies (laughs) and different texts that are spiritual or even just autobiographically awesome and empowering and that's a spiritual experience for me as well as taking time for meditation like I can't wait to sit down for 10 minutes in the morning and just be still and sometimes like I really feel like I'm holding hands with like who I would call the goddess or my experience of the divine or sometimes it feels like my grandmother who passed away like I feel Mm. that presence of calm that cares for me and it's it's vast and it's big and it's, it's still uncertain Like I'm choosing it in a new way. It's not required of me. I yearn for it. I would even
1: go one step further and say it's almost like being in a beautiful love affair because Mm. you're entering in this really beautiful relationship with the divine in a way that is exciting and palpable and romantic and all of these things that I think all of these adjectives that could be applied to human relationships in a romantic sense, because you're just sort of uncovering all of these things and you're curious and you want to know more. And like you said, you read a lot of different things. I read a ton of different things. I've read read the gamut of everything and I'm totally <laughs> interested in everybody's journey. It's so interesting to me to know how people have walked through this life and how they've decided they're going to maintain a relationship with divine. With spirit, with God, the universe, whatever they want to call it. I don't even care if it necessarily resonates with me. I just want to understand what their process was, how they got through it. Um, And this podcast is a lot about that. And that's why I'm bringing all of these people here is just to be able to have that shared experience that I think we talked about really early on with the kids who are growing up in our current society who have access to more things like they're going to have a completely different journey than we ever would have had because they have access to things. And like we talked about the internet mm-hmm. and stuff, it's just so beautiful yeah. to me to be in relationship with God in such a different way than we experienced in the beginning of our lives.
0: Yeah. I love that you say intimate as someone that a yoga practitioner, like it's physical sometimes like our bodies. And I think that you were, you touched on this a little bit, but. There's a little bit of like be ashamed of your body or hide it away mm-hmm. or don't touch it and instead <laughs> um you know in this new intimate relationship with God that you are you're talking about or with a divine experience or with this vast experience of the universe instead it's like, well, I'm a part of this nature i'm a I am this and this form is a way that I get to experience this really beautiful thing called life. And I get to age in this life and I get to experience pain in this life Mm -hmm. and I get to experience pleasure. So there's so much goodness. And so that makes it intimate. It's physically intimate sometimes. Yeah. We might have
1: to do a whole, a a whole other episode on the sexual component of it, but like I had to (laughs) relearn everything. I mean, I was not in my Mm. body because it was shameful and i did not allow myself to feel pleasure and that a lot of that was just from stuff that was being put on me from my childhood and things like that and the religion of origin I kind of talked about it today. I did a Instagram live. I think the meditation is is everything and it even is in those mm-hmm. moments of pleasure and it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual pleasure. I, yeah. I think Hinduism this idea of prasad which is, you know, sharing the sweetness or remembering the sweetness of life and usually when mm-hmm. people take prasad at satsang on Sundays, they're taking it to remember the sweetness of life, and then they're ingesting something really sweet. To me, that is so beautiful, because it's so easy to forget how beautiful and how sacred our everyday life is, if we're just going from day to day living and not really stopping and thinking and just being in union with our our creator. Yeah. All right, let's talk about what nuggets of wisdom you have For anyone wanting to leave or questioning leaving their their religion of
0: origin. Well, what's interesting is we talked about severing ties. What's happened for me actually is that almost every tie that I severed when I left the church, except that was important to me, has come back around. So two of my best friends I grew up with in high school, they contacted me and when they left the church. So we were like the good devout girls. And they also later in life at around 25 and 27, reached out um when they were doubting and also um when they left and both of them actually apologized Of like we were so sorry this is so hard and we wish we had been there for you it also made me really grateful that I went through it at 19 and 20 instead of waiting until um I was 26 and had a family and had already mm-hmm. integrated myself in the society so much that seems so much more difficult so I definitely had conversations with them and I've definitely I definitely had advice and my first one is that it's such a grieving process Um, like all the stages of grief that that we go through with death yeah yes and I always say like brace yourself for the anger (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah we kind of Um, talked
1: about that a little bit at the retreat
0: and with um Mormonism and I and I'm not familiar with your brand of Catholicism however they're like anger is of the devil in in mormon faith so like they say that the devil is the father of contention so anger is very much a shameful emotion <laughs> is we're, that we're why, not supposed to get angry
1: is that why so many mormons are so even keeled they're just not allowed to feel anger
0: i would say that it's a lot of repression and yes you're not supposed to feel anger that like anger is, is basically a sin wow which has, as you can imagine, a lot of psychological repercussions. <laughs> oh, absolutely.
1: <laughs> anger is a natural emotion yeah. to feel. And if you repress it, then it's going to manifest itself in really dangerous ways, I think, sometimes.
0: I agree. So not only are you, are, is someone that's leaving the church going, in my opinion, going to go through this, the same grieving process that we go through with death, mm-hmm. that that grieving process involves anger. And if you have been raised in the church anger isn't something that you're you're really allowed to feel so it's really easy to try to shut that down or to be Mm -hmm. really surprised by it or even just to like try to reject it and instead I think it's just a part of the process
1: well and it's probably really scary I think if you're not taught to allow it to come or that you have to repress it it can be really scary Mm -hmm. to feel your anger rise inside you
0: yeah it's scary it's intense and it's there until it's not there right (laughs) So you definitely think
1: that there's like this grieving process and then there's anger. Yeah.
0: What, what and denial kind of... and bargaining.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of the stages of grief. What would you say helped you keep moving away from your church of origin to figure out what you believed on your own?
0: I think that I was driven by a desire to feel happy. I I was just really speaking feeling joyful. Like yeah. I left because I was miserable. And so I knew that the way to find joy was was not where I was going. And that's really all I knew. Yeah. So there was a lot of pivoting. There was a lot of missteps. And I know that I, I shoved down a lot of things, too. Yeah. I, there was a lot of things that I didn't deal with and that I tried to hide from. And they eventually surfaced. I didn't really have a choice. Um, I know <laughs> a lot of other ex-LDS people, myself included, that have dealt with addiction along the way because there's just, so much to feel and feeling really ill-equipped to
1: deal with it. Time anyone puts an abstinence on anything. It really mm-hmm. messes up your ability to have a good relationship with whatever it is they're asking you to abstain from. Just, yeah. It's just the human condition to I really do feel like swing to that other extreme if you especially if you're getting outside of you know whatever it is that they're telling you to do I think it's totally natural to go to the other end of that and then you don't even have the right tools to pick up the pieces right?
0: (laughs) Yes rebellion was definitely a huge part of my path. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just, <laughs> if I was just to talk to someone that was going through it, I would also bring that up and mention, hey, whatever it is we use to avoid that which is here, whatever we're using to escape the feelings of right now, it will come back around. Right. And so there's really no choice but to feel everything. And, you know, if I was going to do it again, I would get a psychologist and <laughs> immediately <Gosh. laughs> it ended up okay.
1: And I think maybe it's important to encourage anyone, not just LDS folks. I think it's important to state here that it's good to rebel because you it's necessary. And the rebellion yeah. is not negative now there can be negative consequences from the rebellion if you do fall into addiction or if you try to isolate yourself or you know whatever it might be some people gaslight their whole lives you know like it could turn into whatever i think it's important to state that the rebellion is natural and the rebellion is healthy because i think that message isn't isn't really shared a lot of times And I want to share. that. I
0: agree with our, that.
1: Yeah, I want to share that with our audience because I think you and I—we've lived it, and the rebellion yeah. got us to the other side, the opposite side of where we were, and into a better space. And it's important to remember that—that you, you, everything is going to be all right, and you're going to get to the other mm-hmm. side of it. You just will have some stumbling blocks along the way, but the rebellion is—I think—sometimes the engine that drives the, the real change that you need to undergo.
0: It's useful. It's super useful. Yeah, I agree with that. Maybe the real key is to know when to let let it go. Yeah,
1: you kind of alluded to it. Is it's just part of the process, and I know it was Mm -hmm. part of the Mm -hmm. process for me as well too. I mean, I think our everyone's rebellion will look a little bit different.
0: It's going to show up Uh, as my other friends have navigated the experience as well. It can be important to remember that not everyone's on the same timeline. Right. So, as I discussed my friend that saw me through, like I wasn't quite ready when he was. And at first, I felt really uncomfortable. A couple of friends of mine that, that are friends from high school who have also transitioned away from the faith as well. Um, one was raised in the church, and the other was a convert in his teenage years. So, they were married, but one of them had a recollection of what life was before they were Mormon, and one of them didn't. Oh, and he kind of was like rushing her a little bit. Or not necessarily, but kind of confused on like why they weren't on the same page yet. And one of the things that I talked about specifically was that, you know, it's different when it's everything you know. Yeah. And it's one thing to leave when you have this taste of like what life was before, as opposed to someone who maybe everything they knew from the second they were born was this thing. Yeah. And now you're asking them to move at the same pace as you. The pace is unique for everyone. Just like, you know, the techniques that we use to rebel are unique for everyone. Mm -hmm. We can't really decide the timing. No, I'm really grateful for my timing now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And I think you can even take it a step further outside of religion, because I know we've been beating up both of our uh, religions of origin (laughs) on this call, but... I think you can take it a step further and also say to everybody, your unfolding of your life is on its own timeline. You can never skip steps. And sometimes that can be frustrating in your own journey. And sometimes you're learning the same lesson over and over and over again. Mm. And it's all revealed within the right amount of timing. I think part of it is very psychological in the sense of like when when your subconscious is ready to release something. It will release Mm. it when it knows you're ready. And that wisdom of your subconscious supersedes any sort of timeline you have (laughs) for getting through the next thing and moving forward and wherever your life is wanting to go. I love that. Yeah. Well, Mm. how about we leave it there unless you have anything else you want to share about how to get through leaving the LDS Church?
0: One thing I would say is read everything you can. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that that was already coming through in what we talked about, but really nice to be able to lean into the wisdom of all the incredible people who have walked before you. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite ones are is a bunch of rebels. Like you talked about Buddhism, and what a rebel, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, he left all of his material wealth and everything to live an ascetic life. And and there's so many other brave people. And and we're those brave Mm -hmm. people, too. And everyone who's on a journey right now and is questioning things, you're brave as well. And you've got to keep it up. Mm -hmm. What three things are you grateful for in this moment?
0: Incredibly grateful for having a forum forum to talk about this, Krista, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. It feels great to be heard by someone who shares this similar experience, even though the actuality of it was very different. I just feel like there was a lot of common Mm threads. And it's always that amazing experience to have someone say, like, me too. And I get that, Mm -hmm. especially in such a articulate way. Um, I'm also really grateful that I got to go rock climbing today, <laughs> and that I, I'm i really grateful for my Oracle book, my roomy Oracle book. That one's right in front of me right now, which is uh, by Alana Farchild.
1: Was that the book that you had when I saw you? Uh,
0: yes. Oh, my gosh, it was. And it's on the table right now. <laughs> I love it, it is exactly that book it's my how, my roomie oracle that i had that's how i vetted. that's you. how we met i
1: know and that's how i vetted you as good people i was like if she's got <laughs> <laughs> if she's got roomie in front of her she's clearly love intelligent and kind and compassionate and i have, I have to talk to this chick <laughs> <laughs> oh that's
0: funny that we landed on that well it's come full circle we began and ended with roomie
1: Thank you so much for your honesty and for sharing everything. And I'm just so grateful that you did this with me.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: This podcast was written, directed, and produced by me, your host, Krista Ziomata. Co-produced and mixed by Billy Lee Myers Jr. Music created and curated by Mr. Pixie. Podcast artwork by Rebecca Rodella. You can find I'm Awake Now What podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Head over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, download, rate, and review. Come back every Sunday to take part in a new and enlightening conversation. May you be filled with love and light
2: until we meet again.